Welcome to the DTB podcast for December 2021, volume 59, number 12. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's Deputy Editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, Editor-in-Chief. Thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we will talk about some of the content of the December issue of DTB. And we're recording this on the 9th of November. Uh, before we get to the December issue, I wanted just to look back um, at the last year, ask a quick reflection of James on how life is in general practice November 2021 compared with November 2020. I had a quick look at the data this time last year. We had 20,000 COVID cases a day, 300 deaths a day. Now we are at about 27,000 cases a day and 135 deaths. Um, what does it feel like in general practice? It feels very different. And I think the difference was that last year, um, all normal services had been suspended and we were on sort of pandemic alert. Um, there was lots of discussion going on at this time about the uh, immunisation programme, how it was going to run. We were talking as practices and building together a, a, a process to allow us to set up our, our big um single hub at the race course so we were doing lots of work there and we were being very reactive really i suppose in in our medicine so we were still seeing patients but a lot of the calls were, we were taking first of all was telephone triage first and then seeing patients who we needed to see that's all changed because um normal service has been resumed um apparently and so we are madly trying to make sure that we're doing all the things that general practice does that are really important for the nation's health so you know it's things like immunization programs the flu jabs obviously but also just standard routine immunizations medication reviews, looking after patients with diabetes and hypertension and with cerebrovascular disease, all that stuff is going on. And yet at the same time, we've also got um, COVID brewing away. And of course, we've been particularly hit locally by the issue with that laboratory that was giving nothing but negative PCR test results. So actually, West Berkshire's had one of the highest rates of uh, COVID in the country. And we're trying to get our heads around that. And that impact really has an effect on us personally, obviously, if we get COVID, but more with family um, and the impact that then has on staff being able to come in and work. And I think the biggest issue for us at the moment is is running the ship, keeping that um, business continuity, if you like, because we never quite know when someone's going to have to be off for whatever reason. So the things that were suspended, or at least temporary suspended about a year ago, so all the routine follow-ups for I don't know, blood pressure monitoring, uh, women who are taking the pill, they're now back into place and you're doing them routinely? Well, that's right. And of course, we were behind perhaps, so we were really cracking on. And then, of course, we had the, the blood bottle issue. And so, you know, just as we were trying to get patients properly um, uh, tested for their routine, um, whether it's review or whether it was patients who are on uh, disease-modifying drugs that require regular um, blood tests, you know, all that was sort of snarled up and, and we were struggling to, to, to work out what we should do in the way of prioritising those patients. Now, that seems to have settled. I don't, I'm not aware that we're having any further issues with blood bottles, so those, those uh, blood tests are going ahead. But it's... Um, it's just it's just felt like an awful long year. And I think a lot of us are just feeling like, oh, my goodness, we've got a winter to do now. Um, and it's already feeling like 
it does in February. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think a lot of tired minds out there um, looking for something positive. And what would you say the patient experience is like now for general practice? Is it as it was or has it changed? So this is my personal reflection. I think it's very mixed. And I think there are some practices which are still struggling to open doors. Um, and that may be for internal issues around waiting room space or maintaining patient safety. But I think practices are hugely different in their approach to this. I think some practices have gone back to really much, much higher face-to-face -face, um, consultations and others haven't. And that may be because it suits the population or it may be because it suits the practice. And I think that's where there's this dichotomy in, in feelings amongst patient groups. I think some are very happy, some are not. I think just the change um, has shaken people and I think, unfortunately, what always happens, it seems to me, with changes, it's very often the most deprived and less or least accessible group that seems to lose out. Um, and I fear that's the issue at the moment. Um, how we get around that um, is a difficult one, because I think um, we really do have problems with getting face-to-face um, -face appointments in place if you have no room in your waiting room to keep people safely distanced. And would you say that's going to be the biggest challenge for the next few months is, is a managing what could be a difficult winter, but also coming to terms with how you reach those, that group of people who perhaps have been disadvantaged? Exactly. And, you know, classic case in point, we are really struggling to get um, booster doses to the house bound patients because that's an enormous task. Um, obviously, most of the booster jabs being given out are Pfizer locally, which means a 15 minute wait. Um, we're a big rural area, so it's 20, 30 minute car journey sometimes. So to get round to all our housebound and get them immunized in itself is a, is a big task. But on the whole, a much better place than we were this time last year. Yes, I, oh, definitely. I think I think the the immunisation program has been a huge success. I mean, what has been fascinating is that we're still phoning up patients um, over fifty five um, who are COVID positive, and I'm going to touch on wood now. But every single one that I phoned up in the last six weeks has been double jabbed, and every single one of them says, "Oh, doctor, I feel fine." You know, so. The good news is that we're seeing far less sick patients than we were a year ago. Excellent. Okay, thank you for that. Um, okay, for this issue of DTP, let's talk about the editorial. A couple of our shorter DTP select articles and then our main review article. So starting with the editorial, this one written by Tech um, and is titled Tackling Overprescribing, Striking the Right Balance. Uh, James, what's it about? So this is Tech really reflecting on a government commission report that came out in September, which looked at prescribing and particularly overprescribing and highlighted, and I think this was hit by the in the press, you know, 10% of medicines um, they felt were being overprescribed in primary care. And the report looked at the issues around that, the barriers um, perhaps to making adjustments to medication. But actually tech not only looks at that, but he actually also, I think, points out quite rightly that there's a flip side to this, which is actually that we are still in some areas under prescribing, you know, good medication with a good evidence base. And it's about, you know, not only looking at the overprescribing we're doing, but also the underprescribing. And the report, as you say, which was picked up quite widely by the media, 
reflected on overprescribing, did they talk about what they actually, how they define, what they meant by overprescribing? Because you know, it's easy to use the term, but I just wonder what their, what their reflection was. Yeah, so they said it's where people are given medicines they don't need or want or where the harms outweigh the benefits. So that was how they defined overprescribing. Um, and as I say, what, the report, uh, I think, um, actually, if you read it, uh, doesn't actually blame primary care at all for this. It points out that actually a lot of it is down to um, perhaps a decision being made by a specialist in secondary or tertiary care. And then a GP, perhaps five years later, not feeling they're in a position to be able to perhaps counter that decision that was made earlier and actually stop the medication. So it is it is a sort of issue around not only time pressures, um, but also the fact that sometimes we don't feel we're in a position to make that sort of decision. And in terms of solutions, I mean, tech rightly you know, warns against the, the, the problem of missing out on those people who are not currently taking what they would ideally be taking. But were there any solutions for tackling um, over-prescribing or is this still a bit of an evidence-free zone? Well, it is. I mean, I think that's what tech says. You know, there's no evidence that interventions to limit or reduce over-prescribing improve outcomes. Um, so at the moment, you know, it is a bit of an evidence-free zone. But I think it's one of those areas where actually as, as prescribers, there is a bit of a virtuous circle to this in the sense that if there are drugs that are being used that really are, particularly those that are where the harms outweigh the benefits, and often patients will tell you these drugs, you know, they'll say, well, I, you know, I'm take, meant to be taking this drug, I don't know, for let's say lower urinary tract symptoms, but actually A, they're not helping my symptoms and B, they're making my mouth dry. Well, <laughs> there's absolutely no reason for that patient to continue that medication whoever suggested they should be on it. And I think that's the thing. I think it's working with patients, picking what we used to call the low hanging fruit. That was a, that's a blast from the past, but, you know, looking at the simple stuff and then perhaps spending some more time. And this is perhaps where our clinical pharmacists can come in, you know, actually looking at more difficult decisions and perhaps they've got time to perhaps even contact specialists and say, look, is there still a need for this drug? Can we consider stopping it? It might just need a slightly longer ladder to reach the next... <laughs> branch of fruit. Indeed. Okay, um, thank you for that. Let, let's look at our first select article. This was uh, one that was a summary of a study of, of blood pressure monitors used by uh, people at home. What did they find? Yeah, so this is the sort of study which, you know, I often say to budding young GPs, look, if you want to do a bit of research, you know, this is a classic study that anyone could have done. Very nice cross-sectional observational study, seven practices basically approached their patients and said, do you want to take part in a scheme where we'll look at your blood pressure monitor and we'll check to see how accurate it is? So as I say, it was seven UK practices and I think um, about 500 patients were interested in having their monitors checked. And after they excluded those that they couldn't check because they were, for technical reasons, like they were wrist or finger um, monitors. They looked at 331 monitors and basically assessed how accurate they were. And were they any good? <laughs> well, the interesting thing was that if you look at the overall score, only 76% of monitors that were tested passed every test that they did on them, which was tests of accuracy and also looking at the cuffs and that sort of thing, which in itself sounds uh, not so good. I mean, the good news is that actually if you looked at... Um, 
sort of accuracy issues, then actually only 14% failed due to accuracy issues. And they did use very stringent criteria for this. They used an error rate of just three millimeters of mercury. So they were being pretty stringent about that. So what advice do patients get about um, accuracy of their machines and maintaining them? Do they get anything? So I think there were a couple of points. First of all, validated machines definitely came out better in this study. So um, uh, I think 96% of all validated machines um, passed all the tests compared with just 64% of non-validated. So the first thing to do is look at the British and Irish Hypertension uh, Society's website. They have a list of validated machines. And the second thing they found, which was quite interesting actually, and I think is, is probably quite pertinent for practices in general, was that they found that actually these monitors seem to last for about four years. And after that time, they seem to go um, wrong. So only 5% of monitors failed uh, in the first four years. But after that, 26% of older models seem to fail. So I think there's something about, yes, get a validated machine. Doesn't have to be expensive. Some of the validated mid-price range machine starts at just over £10. But then actually consider replacing them after four years seems to be the best option here. Yes, and I think that was the learning point for me, that the, the four-year cutoff, which I don't think I'd ever seen before, um, is, is, is a key message to give to patients. And I, I say, I think for practice as well, although we obviously get our machines validated, I do wonder whether we need to be particularly careful with machines that are older. Okay, thank you very much. And the second select item that we wanted to talk about this month was a recent safety alert from the MHRA on topical corticosteroids. Uh, I think perhaps one that took us a little bit by surprise. So what was the problem? Yeah, so this, as you say, this is interesting. And I suppose it is is an example of patient power. Uh, This uh, is a case of... um, an inquiry from a patient uh, to the yellow card scheme asking about the issue of topical corticosteroids withdrawal reactions. And this sort of triggered, I think, um, a response from the MHRA and the Commission on Human Medicines. And they found 55 possible um, topical steroid withdrawal reactions in their system with another 62 possible ones under the yellow card scheme. And also I think the CHM, the Commission on Human Medicines, found six papers that looked at this. So they obviously did a bit of uh, a workaround and, and felt that actually this was an issue which hasn't been well recognised and um, perhaps should be drawn to our attention. And what was it they, you know, what constituted a withdrawal reaction? Well, that's right. So I think, you know, the question always is, if if someone stops their steroids and their condition comes back, is that just because their conditions come back or are they having a rebound um, uh, flare? And that, you know, is the burning clinical question. And I think what they felt was that actually you tend to get more burning rather than itch as as a main symptom with a, withdrawal reaction compared to just your problem coming back. Often as well, um, the redness that you get is confluent rather than patchy. Uh, and often the overall condition is is slightly different than the reason you started those steroid, um, that steroid uh, treatment in the first place. So I think it's just to be aware. And of course, certain areas are more prone to this face and genitals are two areas in particular. And I think on reflection, I think, a lot of GPs are well aware that um, 
any sort of steroid cream on the face can create this awful situation where you just seem to go round and round um, with rebound effects. But I don't think we had clocked its particular issue elsewhere as well. And what struck me again was that here's a familiar message. Um, use the lowest dose and lowest potency uh, cream for the shortest time and review regularly. And it seems you know we've heard that, heard that before with non-steroidals, with inhaled steroids for asthma, um, and now topical steroids for skin conditions. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I have to say, I, you know, I was always taught that anything uh, more than hydrocortisone is never put on repeat. You know, it's something you really want to keep a close eye on. And I think that message probably is stronger now than it ever has been. Okay, thank you very much. And, and then finally, our main article this month um, looks, it's mainly looking at the impact of a decision by uh, the US Food and Drug Administration to license uh, two drugs for hypoactive sexual desire in women, and particularly flag up the consequences of those decisions. So you know, what's the issue here? Uh, this is a fantastic um article and i think you know if ever there was a reason for dtb to still exist it's to highlight these sorts of issues so this is a a classic bit of i believe manipulation where um following the success of viagra and other phosphodiesterase inhibitors for erectile dysfunction in men pharmaceutical companies were looking at ways to expand their market for women and this is about the development of a disorder which they called hypoactive sexual desire disorder, which was sort of really developed, if you like. Um, and so having then developed this disorder, they then, you have this, these two drugs, bremulanotide and flibanserin, which despite having failed to be licensed for the initial condition that they were originally designed for, they then eventually after multiple attempts and multiple changes to how the evidence was processed and how the evidence was 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 developed they managed to get these these two drugs licensed for low sexual desire in women and it seemed reading the article that the you know flibanserin which was rejected for this um, indication twice but it was lobbying and some campaigning that actually finally got it through. So not not new evidence no new data but it was a change in, in how the regulatory authorities considered the evidence that made it finally get a license, um, which again, doesn't feel quite right. No, absolutely. I mean, flibanserin was initially developed as an antidepressant. It was ineffective. It was then um, tested for women's low sexual desire and they applied unsuccessfully in 2010. Beringer failed. So they then sold the product rights to Sprout Pharmaceuticals and Sprout put an application again three years later in 2013, and that was also unsuccessful. And then they, in effect, created a lobby. So they used patient um, testimonials um, and, and sort of really built up a sort of claim against the FDA that they were basically, that sexism was underplaying the FDA's refusal to approve these drugs for women's sexual dysfunction. And eventually the FDA staff, um, you know, acknowledging the small treatment effect, but considering the unmet medical need to prove this drug, as you say, despite the evidence being incredibly slight, I mean, really with primary outcomes from all the various studies that had been done showing that they were ineffective. And it was the use of almost what were secondary outcome measures being promoted to primary outcome measures with 
use of rating scales that seem to swing the balance in in the end but as you say the the overall the that they were very small benefits of really questionable clinical relevance. Absolutely. I mean, with bromelanthanotide, um, if you look at the clinicaltrials.gov website, um, of the 11 outcomes listed actually as sort of at the beginning when they were creating the study, only two were reported as planned. Um, and there are 15 reported secondary outcomes which weren't listed on the original clinicaltrials.gov website. So they, you know... We know that when that sort of thing happens, the uh, the bias that occurs is is a huge issue. So I'm afraid this is, you know, I think pharma at its worst. And um, it's really important that we have people like Barbara um, Vinci, who's one of our board members, you know, looking at this sort of thing and, and just holding it up to the light because this doesn't do anyone any good. It doesn't do the... Um, our patients any good it doesn't do clinicians any good and it certainly doesn't do the fda or other organizations any good either and of course once you've changed the the process and approved your first drug it then becomes very difficult because you've set the precedent the second third and fourth will get through well this is and this is what they felt about um because flibanserin was successful i think uh the feeling is that bromelanotide came in under the sort of radar as a result so it's really um fascinating story and if, if people are interested in this sort of thing then i would recommend they read it because it, it <laughs> you know almost beggars belief but you you recognize just how subtle and and clever and um canny marketing can be and this is an example of marketing beating medicine which is never a good thing okay thank you uh, yes and a great great article from barbara to end end our our year with um so you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtp.bmj.com thank you to everyone who's left us a comment on our podcast it's great to have your feedback and suggestions please continue to let us know what you think of our podcasts um, negative or positive uh, you can leave us a rating or a comment on the itunes site there's a link to the dtp itunes podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast or email us directly at dtp at bmj.com and we're more than happy to receive suggestions for other topics that you think we should cover so many thanks for listening to us and we hope you'll be able to join us for january's podcast in a month's time <music>